As we return to the gospel according to Mark, it's been almost a year now since we started this. I hope you've been enjoying it, just seeing and treasuring Jesus. This morning we'll look at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, and we'll see that the kingdom of God is for the empty-handed. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. If you'll please follow along as I read. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we rejoice to see your tender hearted compassion toward your creation. We rejoice to see your holy indignation toward your disciples who sought to hinder little children from coming to you. Perhaps they thought that children were a waste of your time and that you had more important things to focus on. Perhaps they thought that they were the gatekeepers to to you and they were the ones who determined who could come to you and who could enter the kingdom of God. We don't really know what their motives were as you you haven't made that clear to us, Lord. But as we look around at humanity and mankind, we see some of these very same things, some of these very same characteristics in the world. And yet as we search our own hearts, we can see even some of these same things in us. Times perhaps where we have hindered other people from coming to you, maybe not physically like the disciples did, but in our minds at least, hindered them because of the way that they looked to us, hindered them because of the way that they didn't believe all the specific things that we believe. So we ask for your forgiveness, Lord. And we pray that you would so capture us with the beauty of who you are as we see not just your heart reflected in this passage, Lord Jesus, but we see the very heart of the triune God. There has never been a time, O God, when you were okay with people being hindered from coming to you, especially the helpless especially the vulnerable. So Lord, we pray that as we, as we see Jesus here, that we would come to understand that this isn't a different God than the Old Testament, that the Old Testament God was sort of grumpy and just always looking to blast people, but that we would understand that 
in Jesus, we see the full and true expression of, of who you are, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you have always had a tender heart toward the humble. In fact, it's the humble that you look upon and the proud whom you oppose. Lord, as, as we see the pride of the disciples here, we pray that you would expose any pride that might be evident in our own hearts and that we would lay it at the feet of the cross. That instead of treasure, treasuring our own, our own identities, our own rules, our own standards, that we would cherish the old rugged cross. We would understand that in order to come to Jesus, you can't come with any preconceived notions. You can't come with any presumptions. You can't come thinking that you bring anything to the table but your sin. And yet, Lord, as, as hard of a pill as that is for us proud people to swallow, it's such a gift. Because the truth is, we don't have anything to offer you that's good. Your word clearly tells us that all our righteousness is just like filthy rags. And so we don't come to you because we've been able to clean ourselves up. We don't come to you because we've been able to follow a certain set of rules and now we're ready. We come to you because we realize we have nothing and we are nothing and you are everything. And when we come empty-handed, you give everything to a bunch of nobodies like us. And we go then from being rebels against you to being your sons and daughters, inheritors of the kingdom of God and ambassadors of that very kingdom. Lord, these are unspeakable gifts. And so as we look at these simple verses, I pray that you would open our eyes to see those very gifts. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. J.P. Morgan is a name that is familiar to probably most all of us, perhaps because it is the name J.P. Morgan and Chase and Company is the largest national, the, the largest bank in our nation, and perhaps even the largest bank in the world. But the man himself was quite impressive from the world's standards. He was, for a time, a member of New York City's elite private social club called the Union Club, which to this day is the oldest social club in New York City. The Union Club was then and still is known for its elite status, and it welcomed members such as Dwight D. Eisenhower and Ulysses S. Grant and so many other well-known names. The club has very strict requirements, and most of those requirements are not known to those outsiders like us, you know, the little peons that aren't, don't own half of the world. They remain very strictly well-kept, and to this day, the Union Club itself does not even allow women to be admitted into it. 
In his day, J.P. Morgan became frustrated with the strict requirements of the Union Club and the other social clubs of New York City, which were patterned after the clubs in London. And so he started, along with a group of other people, he started the Metropolitan Club, which had members throughout, which have had members throughout its years, like Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, and again, many, many other names that you would recognize, or at least the ones that we know about. Like the Union Club, many things are kept strictly secret. But we do know a few things about the Metropolitan Club. First of all, we know that in order to get into the club, you must pay a $5,000 annual fee, which to its members is, is really nothing. The number $5,000 actually reflects the amount of money that each of the 25 founders put in in order to purchase the land all the way back in 1891. I don't know the math on how much $5,000 was in 1891, but I know that $5,000, at least to me today, is a lot of money. Not only do they have an annual fee, but you also must follow the house rules, which you can, you can actually find posted on their website, though you can't really find a whole lot of other information that's released to the public. I want to read some of these rules to you, these house rules. In fact, all of these house rules, there are three house rules that are made public to people like us for the Metropolitan Club. The first one is in regards to the dress code. Of course, if you have to spend $5,000 annually to be a part of it, you have to dress a certain way. So here's the dress code. Gentlemen are required to wear jackets and ties at all times. Turtlenecks and ascots are not acceptable. You know, just in case you wanted to go casual and wear an ascot. He continues, or it continues to say, appropriate attire for ladies is dresses, skirts, dressy pantsuits, and business pantsuits. Jeans, shorts, stirrup pants, I don't even know what that is, but stirrup pants, leggings, stretch pants, tight pants, sweats and t-shirts are absolutely not acceptable. And it continues to go on to say, please be mindful when inviting guests to the club to advise them of this policy. You'd hate to have someone showing up in an ascot or a turtleneck and just bring embarrassment on your whole family line. The second house rule involves cell phones and laptops. It says members and their guests are reminded that use of cellular phones and laptops is not permitted anywhere in the club except in private meeting rooms and bedrooms. And finally, the third house rule is in regard to pets. It says no animals or pets are permitted. Well, there may be a whole lot of information, or there may not be a whole lot of information available to the general public about private elite social clubs like the Metropolitan Club or the Union Club in New York City. It's quite clear that those clubs are not for the average Joe. In fact, those memberships into those clubs are described by one magazine as having defined upper echelon New York culture for hundreds of years. And the magazine article goes on to say, old money is the name of the game here at the Metropolitan Club. It also says that it doesn't get more exclusive than the Metropolitan Club in New York City. 
When you think about clubs like the Metropolitan Club, the Union Club, these, these elite social clubs, you come to understand that these clubs are all about what you have. Status, wealth, prestige, likely a, a family name that's traced all the way back to the founding of the nation, and, and not even just the founding of the nation, but even the top 1% within the nation's founders. But as we've been studying the gospel of Mark, we've heard Jesus offer membership into an entirely different group, the kingdom of God. While man's elite groups may require admittance based upon who you are and what you have, the kingdom of God requires admittance based upon your absolute spiritual poverty. You see, with the kingdom of God, it's not about what you have, but it's entirely about what you do not have and what you need to be given to you. If you try to make coming to Jesus about anything that you have to offer him, then you've missed the point completely. Entrance into his kingdom requires that you repent and believe the good news That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has provided everything that you need for life. And that real, true, everlasting life, the way that God intended it from the very beginning, is not found in anything this world has to offer you, but is only found in what Jesus freely gives through repentance and faith in the gospel. You don't come to Jesus offering up what you have in order to sort of broker a deal with him. You come to Jesus in complete need, in wholehearted dependence, in complete spiritual bankruptcy. And that's the only way you can come to Jesus. Look again at verse 15 of our passage. In his rebuke to the disciples, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This passage teaches us about the tender-hearted nature of Jesus toward children, but it teaches us about something even greater. It teaches us about what is required in order to gain admittance into the very kingdom of God. Forget the Metropolitan Club. I want to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not holding back on his instruction. Jesus is not trying to hide anything from anyone about who he is and about who, what it is that he came to offer and how that offer can be freely received. Because the reality is that the kingdom of God is not for the elite. It's for the empty-handed. It's for the ones who realize 
They bring nothing good to the table. But it's okay. Because Jesus has taken care of it. Because Jesus brings nothing bad to the table. And because Jesus shares everything he has with sinners. And so as we approach this passage this morning, and I want us to see then three actions that reflect the heart of Jesus and clarify who can enter his kingdom. Three actions that reflect the heart of Jesus and clarify who can enter his kingdom. The first of these actions that I want us to focus in on is the anger of Jesus is kindled. The anger of Jesus is kindled. Look with me at verses 13 to the beginning of verse 14. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. This scene follows just after the scene where Jesus has been teaching on divorce and remarriage. He taught the crowds and then he and the disciples went into a house in verse 10. And it seems perhaps that they're still inside of that house. That would, I think, make the most sense of why Jesus didn't initially see the disciples trying to stop people from bringing children to him. Perhaps it seems he was inside of the house and the disciples were outside of the house trying to play the gatekeepers. Just like John had done uh, just a few verses back at the end of chapter nine when he says, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we stopped him because he was not with us. We see yet again the thick-headed pride of the disciples. We see here that the disciples are acting more like the Pharisees than disciples of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus respond to it? He's indignant. The only time that that word describes how Jesus felt about an action that he witnessed himself And it doesn't refer to the Pharisees, though certainly he would have been angry at them at various points. But throughout the four Gospels, this word indignant is only used in Jesus' response to his very own disciples, trying to bar parents, brothers and sisters from bringing children to Jesus Not so that they could get much of anything from him, but just so that he could touch them and bless them. So the anger of Jesus is kindled. Notice it just says they were bringing children to him. The text isn't very clear on who the they was. And so we can understand then that the they must have been just about anyone who thought that they wanted to bring any child probably related to them to Jesus in order to be blessed by him. So certainly I'm sure there were well-meaning, sweet mothers who knew the power of Jesus, who knew the authority of Jesus. They might not have had everything figured out about Jesus, but they knew there's something special, something different about him. And I'm going to bring my baby to him. 
But probably there were fathers involved as well that knew the very same thing. And perhaps there were even older brothers and older sisters who had been past the age of accountability, past the age of adulthood, which for the Jew was 13 years old. And so they were bringing children to Jesus. The word children describes in, in this setting anyone from the age of 12 on down. And so in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 18, he says that they were even bringing infants to Jesus. So you've got this picture, this, this sweet, sweet picture of people who love children 12 years all the way down to little newborns who can't do anything to help themselves. And they've, they've heard Jesus is in town. And they say, hey, now's our chance. We're going to take our children to Jesus because we just want him to touch them. We just want him to, to bless them. Just like our forefathers have, have blessed their children from Abraham on down. You, you see the, this happening in the Old Testament over and over and over again, don't you? And, and to us in our culture, I think that we're tempted sometimes to think when, when Abraham pronounces a blessing or when Isaac or when Jacob pronounces a blessing or when, when Joseph pronounces a blessing, they're just words, But what you see over and over again in the scriptures is that those are not just words. That God takes those blessings deeply seriously. Think of when Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing of Esau. Now it was underhanded and it was scoundrel-like, but it was within the will of God and God took that blessing seriously. So much so that you fast forward into the full revelation of God and we learn that God says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. And so these are not just words spoken or a touch given. There's something powerful about what is happening here. And they knew that. It was a common practice apparently for them to bring their children to the local rabbi to bless their children. Uh, the, the child mortality rate was very high in those days. And so it was not uncommon for children to die very shortly after childbirth or to not make it very far into their maturity before they would die before adulthood. And so parents would bring their children to the local rabbi. And now notice they're skipping right over the rabbi and they're going to Jesus. But standing in the way as self-appointed gatekeepers are the disciples, and, and Mark just says, the disciples rebuked them. We've seen rebuke so far in the Gospel of Mark. The word most often refers to how Jesus speaks to the demons. Mark wants us to understand that the attitude that the disciples had toward these loved ones bringing their children to Jesus was the the very same attitude that Jesus had toward the demons. Now notice he doesn't tell us exactly why they rebuked him. Though I think there were probably a whole host of reasons. But we can trace it all the way back down into a heart that did not understand the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this isn't the first time the disciples have blown it. But we can relate to that, can't we? Because we're just like the disciples. 
we blow it all the time. And yet, just like Jesus didn't say to the disciples, I've had it with you. I'm going to get a whole new crop. You guys go back to your boats and go fishing somewhere. No, he has strong words for them. He, he expresses his anger toward them, a holy and righteous anger, but he does not cast them out. Do you know why? Because Jesus doesn't throw away his disciples. Jesus does not throw away those whom have come to him in dependence upon him and yet still struggle with their sin. And isn't that such good news? There has never been, Christian, and there never will be a time in your Christian life, in all of your life, where the acceptance of Jesus was dependent in any way upon you. Jesus' arms are open wide to all those who come to him in complete and humble submission. With full recognition, Lord, I'm a sinner and I don't deserve anything from you, but for some reason you love sinners and you save sinners. It's good news even as we see the rebuke of Jesus toward his disciples. And so the disciples rebuke the crowd and as soon as Jesus sees what's going on, who knows how long these rebukes were happening, but verse 14 says, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Why was Jesus indignant? Well, look back to chapter nine with me. Chapter nine, verses 36 to 37, not very far from the story of where we're at right now, Jesus had a really important lesson to teach his disciples, and it began with their argument about who was the greatest among them. Now, I'm sure nobody has that argument today anymore. Nobody says, I'm the greatest. The reality is that temptation is in every human heart, ours included. And so as they argue about who's the greatest, they're embarrassed when Jesus asked them what they were talking about. They keep silent in verse 34. But then notice what Jesus does in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Who sent Jesus? The Father. So the disciples learned an important lesson. Rather than competing for, for the, the position of priority, rather than competing to see who's the greatest, what a Christian must do, what anyone must do who wants to be received by Jesus is to receive children. Now certainly there are all kinds of implications to that, to receive the vulnerable, to receive those who are looked down upon, but the plain statement that Jesus makes, the clear illustration that Jesus gives is to children. And now we're back in chapter 10, and who is it that's trying to come to Jesus, but the disciples are barring from being able to come to Jesus? It's children. 
He just told them, if you receive children, then you receive me, and you don't just receive me, you receive my father. So what would be the opposite of that? If you don't receive children, you don't receive Jesus, and you don't receive the father. The disciples were in Danger, in the dangerous position yet again of being inflicted by the leaven of the Pharisees, just like Jesus had warned them about. Here they reflect the Pharisees far more than they reflect their very own master. We need to understand then that the anger of God is kindled when someone is prevented from coming to Jesus. It's not a neutral thing to prevent someone from coming to Jesus. God hates it. It angers him. And so then we need to think about the way that we live our lives, the way that we conduct ourselves. Because I'm willing to guess that we're probably not guilty of this as often as we could be. But I wonder if any of us hold any moral hindrances to keep people from coming to Jesus? Do you ever look at someone and think to yourself, ah, they're not worth my time. They're so far gone. They're so dead in their sin. They're so enamored with the world. They're so enamored with themselves. They're so deeply down the trail of pursuing their own lusts and their own passions. They're just, they're just not really worth my time. Now, of course, you would never actually say that out loud, or at least not in this gathering. but I would be willing to bet that every single person here is guilty of that at least at one point in your life. I know I am. There's not just moral hindrances that sort of reflect the, the attitude of the Pharisees, but there's also theological or doctrinal hindrances. In order to come to Jesus, you have to believe everything that I believe about Christianity. You've got to be a dispensationalist. You've got to be a cessationist. You've got to be a Calvinist. You've got to be on and on and on and on and on, right? And the temptation, especially for those of us that are serious about the Bible, serious about accurate interpretation of the Bible, the temptation for us is to take secondary or tertiary issues and move them into the category of gospel issues and thereby alienate ourselves from the greater kingdom of God. Friends, if you're not willing to recognize that you might be wrong about some of your theological convictions, then you might have another thing coming when you see Jesus. I used to think I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, I thought I was right about everything. And, and here's full confession. I still wrestle with that. 
You're, you're not surprised, I'm sure. But I don't think I'm alone in wrestling with that. You ever met someone who maybe speaks in tongues and thought to yourself, ah, those crazy charismatics. I don't think God works that way anymore because we have a completed Bible. But I might be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I don't want to hold so tightly to my own convictions that I think are based on the scriptures in order to alienate other people. Because here's the reality, friends. You will see people in heaven that you disagree with here on earth. So let's not let that be an embarrassing meetup in heaven. Oh man, I just got to tell you, I'm so sorry for being a bonehead. I'm just like the disciples. Will you forgive me? Of course I forgive you for that. Now, of course, we need to draw clear lines where the Bible draws clear lines. We need to hold convictions. There's nothing that says we shouldn't do that. But we need to understand what's of first importance and what things are not so much gospel issues. And within that, we will still have our individual churches where we fellowship with people who believe like us and share some of the same core convictions as us. But the reality is, God has people all over in every place, and we can't tell who's in and who's out. So there's not just moral hindrances, theological, doctrinal hindrances. There's also cultural hindrances. Unless someone looks like us, speaks like us, or acts a certain way like us, then maybe we're a little bit hesitant to think that they can come to Jesus. The anger of God is kindled when someone is prevented from coming to Jesus. So let's make sure that we don't prevent anyone from ever coming to Jesus. That's the first action for us that we see that reveals the heart of Jesus and clarifies entrance into the kingdom. And then there's a second one here. We see not, not just the indignation or the anger of Jesus being kindled, but then secondly, we see the invitation of Jesus being extended. The invitation of Jesus is extended. We're halfway through Jesus' response to the disciples. Let's pick up the rest of verse 14. Jesus was not just indignant, but he said to them, let the, little, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. And there's your command, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The invitation of Jesus is extended, first of all, to children in verse 14. He rebukes the disciples. He says, don't hinder them which is the very same word that Jesus uses, used back in chapter 9, verse 38, to, to respond to John. Don't stop him from casting out demons in my name. Because no one who does a good work in my name can be against me. And so Jesus tells them, don't hinder them, let them come. And he gives them the reason why the disciples were to immediately stop hindering them and let the children through their barricade that they had made. It begins with the word for. 
for to such belongs the kingdom of God. That's a profound statement, isn't it? Belongs, the the word there is most literally, there's is the kingdom of God. So, So there's a component in which Jesus has come to offer the kingdom of God and at that very moment, the kingdom of God was in the possession of these little children. Even though there's a future aspect and a future component of the kingdom of God, and we'll see that in verse 15 when Jesus talks about entrance into the kingdom of God, the reality is he's giving the, the, the truth that the kingdom of God is both now and in the future. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you become a citizen of the kingdom of God with all its benefits and blessings, but the kingdom of God will one day come again to this earth and invade this kingdom and establish a new heavens and a new earth, and we will enter in. But Jesus says that there is a group of people that has already been admitted, and it's these children. Notice he says, to such belongs the kingdom of God. That word means just that, to to such as these, to, to people like these. So it's not just that Jesus is saying what he says in verse 15, that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are childlike in their faith, but he adds that the kingdom of God belongs already to children. Think of a, a school teacher. It's the last day of school, She's so grateful for her class. She's proud of them. She's excited for their growth and their education. She's excited for them to move on. And just before the bell rings on that last day, she says to those students, you know, it's children like you who make me grateful to be a teacher. Does she mean that it's not those kids, but it's kids who are like them, Or does she mean it's both those kids and kids who are like them? The latter, right? So when Jesus says that to such belongs the kingdom of God, he's not just doing what he's doing in verse 15 to say that what he's looking at is this expression of childlike faith. What he's saying is to children, the kingdom of God belongs. It's not because children are pure. We know what the Bible teaches about children. If you've been a child, which is everyone here, then you know that you were not pure. Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're sinful from our conception. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And the culmination of the Bible's teaching in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that would include these children. But there is a reality in which children possess something that adults don't seem to possess. Children possess an utter dependence on others. I think that 
it's not Jesus' intention to teach this, but I think that this clearly, to me, clearly lays out the doctrine that when children die before whatever the age of accountability might be, when they can consciously make a choice to disobey God and reject the gospel, when children die in that state, even in the womb, they go to heaven immediately. Think of David's son who died after Bathsheba. His servants came to him and they said, well, they were whispering and David said, what are you talking about? And and they made it clear that the child had died. David stopped his mourning, cleaned himself up, got something to eat, and they were confused why he would stop mourning. And he said, I cannot go or he cannot come back to see me, but I will go to see him. David knew he was going to glory. And David expressed the reality that all those who die in that state of grace will also go to glory. So Jesus wants to make it crystal clear here that these precious children that were being brought to him, even though they were sinful by birth, they were recipients of the kingdom of God. But then he uses these children to teach his disciples an example in verse 15, that the the invitation and the acceptance, the, the reception of the kingdom of God is not just for children, but it's also for the childlike. Verse 15, he, he makes it crystal clear. Notice his emphatic language. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, if you don't receive the kingdom of God that is being offered to you and extended to you in Jesus, then there's no way in the world you'll ever enter it. So Jesus uses children once again to teach a greater illustration. That the way that children come to him, the way that children come to anyone in complete dependence, in, in, in total desperation, that is how you must enter the kingdom of God. Notice he uses the word receive. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. In order to receive something, it has to be extended to you, right? Right? In the coming of Jesus and in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, both then and right now, the kingdom of God is extended to you. That's why Jesus appoints preachers today. And it's not just preachers who do what I'm doing right now, it's you too. Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Do you know Jesus? Friend, I've got good news for you. He, the king himself, right now is is extending to you the opportunity to know him, to receive the kingdom of God. So will you take it like a child takes it? Think about how a child receives a gift. Christmas was not all that long ago. How do children open gifts on Christmas Day? <laughs> rapidly. Do you say rapidly or rabidly? Yeah, yeah. All of those words. Why? Because they're so eager and they're so sometimes grateful. You know, there's a mixture of emotions there. 
But when have you ever heard a child, before opening a Christmas gift, stop and say, oh, but I I can't possibly accept that. I didn't bring anything for you. (laughs) Never, right? But friends, how often as an adult have you been extended a gift of some sort and said, I couldn't possibly take that? I can't accept that. It's too much. No, 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 no. No, I don't, I don't want, you can't do that. You see, therein lies the difference. A child receives and enjoys. An adult thinks things like, well, I really prioritize earning what I get. If I haven't earned it, then... I don't really want it. I don't take handouts. But kids take handouts. And that's the point here. Jesus is saying, if you're the type of person that thinks you don't take handouts, then you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because that's a prideful attitude. It is worthy to work for what you get, of course. The Bible presents a clear, hard work ethic. But at the same time, especially when God offers you something, to stiff arm it and to say, no, 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 God, I couldn't possibly. Or then to treat it as though, I'll take it, but I got to do something to give back. Is an expression of pure, ugly pride. Instead, the kingdom of God has to be received like a child. I take it and I enjoy it. Is that how you've taken the kingdom of God? Have you taken it like a child and enjoyed it? Is that how you see life? We're not bartering with God. I know we, we have this mentality and, and we sing certain songs about, you know, he's given me so much, how could I not give him back everything? And, and certainly that's true, but that can be taken too far. That can easily work yourself into a works righteousness. He's given me so much, but I've got to take it from here. I've got to earn it. I've got to do what he tells me to do and be what he tells me to be. And the danger is we, of course, have to obey. But why do we obey? Because we love him. And why do we love him? Because he loved us first. You see, the Christian life is not duty. It's delight in the love of God. How do you grow in your Christianity? Not through your self-discipline and your, your Bible reading tactics. Those things are important and necessary. You grow in your Christianity by loving Jesus Christ. And you grow in your love for Jesus Christ by seeing his love for you. And it makes you go, why, God? And so... You spend the rest of your life then recognizing that you're poor in spirit. But what does Jesus say in the Beatitudes? The poor in spirit are the ones who receive the kingdom of God. And that's the point. That's the point. So the invitation 
of Jesus is extended in the kingdom belonging to children and the offer of the kingdom being able to belong to any of you, anybody out there who would simply receive it with a complete dependence, a humble faith, an attitude that says, I bring nothing to the table but my sin, God, but in Christ I get everything from you. This takes us then to the third and final action of Jesus that reveals his heart and clarifies for us entrance into the kingdom. And it's in verse 16. The blessing of Jesus is given. That's the third action. The blessing of Jesus is given. Verse 16 says, and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The parents, the brothers and sisters, the children got what they were coming for. The blessing of Jesus. Jesus broke up the barricade of blockheaded disciples and he allowed the children to come to him. But he didn't just allow the children to come to him. Notice, he wanted the children to come to him. He delighted in the children coming to him. And when they came to him, what does he do? He takes them in his arms. I don't know how many children were gathered, but can you just picture that? I highly doubt it was a line, you know, a single file line. I think it was more like a mob surrounding Jesus. And he took the time to pick them up, hold them in his arms, and offer a blessing. And, and I bet you he did that individually one by one. Because that's the heart of the Savior. He's the Lord of all, and he's the head of the church. But he knows each individual that he has created. And so he holds them. They're not a waste of his time. They're the delight of his soul. He holds them. And he blesses them. And this word bless is an emphatic word for bless. It's not the normal word for bless. Mark is communicating that Jesus was eager to bless them. Friends, we need to understand all of God's blessings are freely and richly given in Jesus Christ. All. What does Paul tell the Ephesians? Every spiritual blessing. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We can't even comprehend what that means to its full extent. But our ignorance of it doesn't make it any less true. And and how does God extend his blessings to the whole world, to all of his creation? Through his son, Jesus Christ. So then let me ask you, are you a recipient of God's blessings in Jesus Christ? Those blessings don't come to you if you're not in Christ. They don't come to you if you've not received the kingdom of God like a little child. 
But if you have received the kingdom of God like a little child, if you have come to repent of your sins and trust that Jesus is the supply of God for your every need, then they are lavished on you. And it's not just that they come as you understand them. The reality is you have been dropped into the middle of a vast ocean called God's grace. And you'll spend not just the rest of this life, but the rest of eternity understanding all that that means and embracing it and enjoying it. Because that's life. That's why God made us. And the full extent of that and the full expression of that can only be known in Jesus. So are you in Jesus? Do you come to God with empty hands? Or do you come to God trying to make a deal? The only deal God makes is with empty-handed sinners. who acknowledge their poverty before him, who acknowledge their complete need, their complete dependence. And while elite social clubs might be appalled at that, God loves it. He loves it. It's, just not, it's not just that he says, okay, come on in, you sinner. It's that the Bible tells us that every time a sinner repents, there's a party in heaven led by the angels. He loves it. He celebrates it. He cherishes it because that's why he made you for him, to know him, to love him, to live for him. That's life, friends. That is life. We're familiar around here with the the great old hymn called Rock of Ages. Its opening line says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. But the third verse captures well what Jesus is saying here. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. While the world's clubs are for those who have something to offer, the kingdom of God is for the empty-handed. So come, sinners, come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the open invitation that we have to come to you. We thank you for your love and we don't deserve any of it and we never will. And yet you lavish it upon us. We rejoice in knowing you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.